Hi there, and welcome to another Oslo podcast from the 24th annual ANZIC CTG meeting. My name's Todd Fraser. Hospital-acquired infections are a great source of concern among critically ill patients. Many such infections arise from the flora of the gastrointestinal tract. So there are some clinicians who believe that decontamination of the oropharynx is an important supportive measure. However, while the evidence base is surprisingly strong for such an underutilized strategy, there remains great reluctance in the broader ICU community. The Sudiku study has been in progress for well over a decade, and I've had the great fortune of interviewing principal investigator, Professor Ian Seppelt several times over the journey. And today he joins me to discuss the results of this important trial. Ian, congratulations and welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Todd. It's a pleasure to talk again. Ian, we've been talking about SDD for a number of years now, but for some people, uh, this remains a new concept. What's the rationale behind SDD? So the, the basic rationale is that by selectively decontaminating the gut, and the word selective is important, um, particularly by getting rid of potentially pathogenic gram negatives um, and yeasts and trying to save so-called good bacteria, you can decrease nosocomial infections, especially pneumonia, and hopefully also decrease mortality in intensive care patients. This actually came from, from haematologists in the 1970s, where it was used specifically in, in septic pancytopenic patients with haematological malignancies, and, and then was extrapolated into intensive care in the Netherlands in the 1980s, um, one of the earliest trials was looking at trauma patients. Part of the rationale there from a microbiological point of view is that if you start off with a so-called clean patient, so a previously well patient who's now in a major trauma, who hopefully has relatively normal gut microbiota, um, by doing this, you can prevent bad things developing in the guts that are associated with infections. Uh, it's less clear in sick medical patients, um, particularly those who've already been exposed to a lot of healthcare and a lot of antibiotics because there's already been changes to, to the gut microbiology. But after the first trials in the Netherlands in the 1980s, um, there were a couple of larger trials in the early part of this century, which showed both um, an improvement in nosocomial pneumonia, but also a survival benefit with the use of STD. And, and that then led to a number of systematic reviews and meta-analyses. In fact, I, th I think there's probably been more systematic reviews published than actual trials published on, on, on this subject, uh, but, but all showing a clear benefit and, and reduction in ventilator-associated pneumonia, but also about half of those trials showed a reduction in mortality. Um, this, is, this is with a point estimate of about between 0.8 and 0.9, depending on, on which review you read, but, but a, a mortality benefit. Based on that, many people say, well, look, the, the data are there. This is something that you should be doing. But outside the Netherlands and very specific parts of Europe, there's, there's been a, a massive amount of nervousness um, and, for a variety of reasons, both intensivists and infectious diseases physicians 
haven't wanted to accept those results, um, the overwhelming concern is the concern that SCD might be driving resistance. Um, and that, that's, that's that the main reason people have been worried with, with, with this, I think, reasonable concern that if you give antibiotics, you cause resistance, and that can't possibly be a good thing, even though the clinical trials say that it is. So what SCD specifically involves is administering both an oral paste and an enteral suspension of some non-absorbable antibiotics. The original Dutch trials used a combination of tobramycin, colistin, and amphotericin. Uh, there have been various variations on that that have been published over time, uh, but that, that has been the, the most common combination plus a short, generally four-day course of intravenous antibiotics to deal with anything that might have been aspirated at the time of intubation. Ian, fair to say the evidence base for STD is fairly strong, uh, certainly a lot stronger than a lot of other things that are routine. Why was there the need for this trial, do you think? So because despite the evidence base, people just didn't want to accept it, and at least part of that problem was that all the, the, the strongest published evidence came from one geographical region, which is predominantly the Netherlands, which also has very, very low rates of endemic resistance and extremely good antibiotic stewardship and, and low levels of antibiotic prescribing. And outside the Netherlands, people have really struggled to accept this. So when our group first started getting interested, part of the rationale was to say, well, regardless of what you think of the evidence to date, this has got to be looked at in a different environment. And we specifically wanted to, to do a trial outside the Netherlands um, to show the external generalizability of this concept and to address some of these concerns about resistance in particular. And I'm sure that you could talk for hours about the process that you've been through mm. over the last uh, couple of decades in this area. But just in brief, give us a snapshot of what it's been like to be involved in a trial like Sudoku. So but before actually starting the trial, there was a fair bit of preparatory work. And in fact, looking back, the ANZICS Clinical Trials Group first started discussing this in 2004. Um, I found a program from the ANZICS meeting in Noosa uh, where, where I gave just an overview of the evidence to date. Um, then around about 2010, we joined in with, with an international collaboration um, being, being led by Brian Cuthbertson, who at that stage was the professor of intensive care in Aberdeen. Um, and that's, that's where the name Sudoku came from. Uh, and the preliminary work there was to try and, and actually formally look at the barriers to implementation of STD. So we as a collaboration did a number of things, um, both looking at specific ICUs. So there were a small number of ICUs in the UK that did do STD and specifically interview people there. They all did it differently um, with, with their own homemade recipes, uh, but that, that was 
less than 10% of, of British intensive care units. We also in interviewed key opinion leaders in intensive care and infectious diseases and pharmacy and intensive care nursing to, to look at what the perceived barriers were. Um, there, there were no surprises there. It, it all came down to, to what we expected. There was some concerns about workload, some concerns about whether this was a difficult thing for the nurses to do, but overwhelmingly it was concerns about resistance. And even though none of the evidence to date from the Netherlands supported this concern about increased resistance, that, that still was the overwhelming concern. So that, that's where things started off. Um, and then the, the grand plan of this collaboration was to do a four-nation parallel groups cluster randomised controlled trial. Um, so this was... Canada, the UK, Australia, and New Zealand, who had signed up for this collaboration. So in fact, when I first got involved with that, my promise was to provide 20 Australian and five New Zealand intensive care units out of a total of 100 worldwide, and then the, the balance would be Canadian or British. Um, that led in 2014 to harmonization of a, of a protocol or agreement on a, on a collaborative protocol. And we submitted grants to, to four granting bodies at that time. Um, of those, the New Zealand grant was actually first and was successful, but that was specifically written for New Zealand to be a small part of a large international collaboration. We submitted our grant for Australia to the National Health and Medical Research Council there were also Canadian and, and British grants that were submitted at that time. The Canadian grant failed. The, the British grant failed with extreme prejudice. Um, interestingly, the response there was, guys, the evidence is overwhelming. You can't do another trial for effectiveness if you think of an implementation program that might, might be different. But that, that was the response of the... National Institute of Health Research in the UK. So we were then left with our, our Australian grant um, and the New Zealanders had a problem where what, what had been left was not what they had signed up for or applied for and, and they felt that they couldn't continue with that grant and had to give the money back. So ultimately we, we had still a decent amount of Australian money but not, not sufficient to fund a whole grant. And we sort of left with the baby that um, the, the, the four nation program had fallen over. Um, we had funding in Australia. And in fact, there is actually no mechanism to return money to the NHMRC, which we, we, did, we didn't realize we explored that as an option. So what that then required was to redesign and, re and rewrite the trial. So it, it was moved from the University of Aberdeen to the George Institute in Sydney, which took over sponsorship of the trial. Um, and it, it was rewritten as a cluster crossover randomized controlled trial, which in retrospect was, was the right thing to have done all along. Um, one of the concerns with the original parallel groups design is that of 100 ICUs, 50 would be controlled and would never see the intervention. The other 50 would do STD. Um, whereas with the crossover design, um, firstly, each unit is its own internal control. Um, 
but also for, for those who were interested in exploring the concept of STD, uh, they, they, they didn't miss out. And, and there were some concerns that the people who actually liked the idea would be randomised to being control only in the original design. So overall, that was, I think, a, a much better design. Um, by using the, the crossover, it's also quite substantially more power. Uh, so it's something that then became manageable with the, the sample size that we had available just in Australia. The only downside of that design is that with the crossover, then every ICU has been exposed to, to STD, um, but without long enough to really be able to assess long-term effects on, on the ecology of the ICU. We certainly did a very detailed assessment on, on the short-term ecological in, impacts, but because of the crossover, there, there were no, no non-contaminated units that, that could be used as a comparator. Uh, but ultimately, we came up with a design that, that had adequate power with 20 clusters to detect a clinically significant difference in mortality. Um, just to remind listeners that in a cluster trial, it's actually the number of clusters more than anything else that determines the power of the trial, rather than the, just the number of, of patients in a standard randomized controlled trial. But 20 clusters was sufficient. And in fact, ultimately we, we had 19 clusters, but that difference of, of one didn't make a significant difference. So leading on from that, um, we, we had our design for a, a 20 unit Australian cluster randomised crossover trial. Um, subsequently, some Canadian money became available. Uh, so some Canadian units could join in with that design. And then three, three British units using Canadian money could join in. So we're, we're back to a, a three nation collaboration until COVID hit. Um, COVID completely ruined intensive care research in non-COVID areas of the UK. They, they did amazingly well with, with COVID, with things like the recovery trial, but, but non-COVID took a bad hit. So the, the three British units basically couldn't recruit and had to withdraw from, from Sudoku. The Canadian units were very, very badly hit um, and had, had to stop recruitment for a large period of time. Um, they're still trying to recruit but are looking at being a long, long way behind finishing the trial. Whereas we were fortunate that many of our units had actually finished before Australia was badly hit by COVID. Um, and even of those, those units that were still completing recruitment, um, there was a neg negligible impact. They were able to keep recruiting. Um, and I'll single out particularly Royal North Shore Hospital and, and the Western Hospital in Melbourne, who did keep recruiting into a COVID surge and finished the trial as designed. And, and we, we don't feel there was any particular impact on the trial from COVID, which was fabulous. Given that, we felt an obligation to analyse and present the data um, and to try and wait for Canadian units in a compromised trial that may or may not finish was, was not acceptable. Um, so, so we've gone on to, to analyze and hopefully publish 
the Australian trial with an agreement for a subsequent merging of databases and individual patient data meta-analysis of the Australian and Canadian trials once the Canadian trial finishes. And it's an incredible story when you hear that sort of journey. There's an awful lot goes into it. But you finally made it, uh, as you mentioned, with a uh, cluster randomised crossover tile structure. Um, what was the actual intervention that was tested in the end? And can you tell us a little bit more about the study itself? Yeah. So, so the in intervention was, was based on classic Dutch SDD. Um, now, one, one interesting twist, uh, looking back at the, at the, the various international papers describing trials is that the very scanty description as to what the intervention actually was, aside from naming drugs, but very little information about precisely how it was formulated pharmaceutically. Um, and I think honestly, in at least some of these trials, it was either made up in the back room of the ICU or made up in the local pharmacy. Um, one thing we did do for this trial is um, engage a local contract pharmaceutical company called Coverita Pharma, who actually put in a, a facility for us to, to manufacture the, the product for this trial. And this is done to full Australian good manufacturing standards. So it's a GMP for pharmaceuticals with, with stability testing and microbiological testing. And, ongoing stability testing for, for over the 12 months period. As far as we know, that's unique and, and nobody has, has done that before for STD. So it's a, it's a Verita made for us um, two preparations. One was some, some pre-made syringes for the oral paste and the other was a, a bottle of a lyophilized powder that was reconstituted to make the enteral suspension. Both of those contained Calistin, tobramycin, and not amphotericin, which is almost unobtainable now, but, but nystatin. Nystatin in, in the gut is almost identical. It's just too toxic to use parenterally, uh, but it's, it's, it's perfectly okay for the um, potential yeasts that, that we're treating with, with STD. So non-absorbable nystatin, Tobramycin and calistin um, formulated in, in little syringes or in an enteral paste. And the protocol required, as a cluster trial, each participating ICU had to sign on for this to be their standard protocol for the duration of, of the trial. Um, we, we insisted that both the the group of intensivists and the group of ID physicians sign off on that. So for the 12 months delivering STD, this is your ICU's protocol. Every patient who fulfills criteria gets STD. Um, and we had ethical approval to do that without consent because it was the, the ICU's protocol for a prophylactic measure. So that's, that's no different to saying that every ventilator patient gets stress ulcer prophylaxis or DVT prophylaxis, unless there are specific contraindications. And the same thing applied to STD. So we, we were looking for all sick ventilated patients. The, the three inclusion criteria were 
patient intubated and ventilated on arrival in the ICU and a prediction that this patient will be ventilated at least until the day after tomorrow. So while of course we sometimes get it wrong, but we don't think this guy's going to get extubated tomorrow. Um, or someone who deteriorates who gets gets intubated in the ICU in the same criterion of intubated in him or her now, but this won't be extubation tomorrow, this will be at least the day after tomorrow. Or finally, as a an all-encompassing trial, we, we had a oops, we got it wrong, get out of jail clause, which was okay, the patient didn't get put in because we thought he'd get extubated, but in fact he hasn't. And I, I now predict at least another 48 hours. So put the patient in now. So in some ways, this is the opposite of most RCTs with, with tight inclusion criteria and lots of exclusions. The idea was to include every eligible sick ventilated patient, but not to include simple post-operative surgical patients who will get extubated quickly, straightforward cardiac surgery, straightforward overdoses and things like that. So, so it's only those where it is likely there's going to be a prolonged ventilation and um, therefore a chance for, for the intervention to, to have some sort of benefit. For the anti antibiotic component, um, if a patient was already getting what we defined as an STD-compliant antibiotic, so for, for therapeutic purposes, that was fine. And particularly provided this was something with a sufficient spectrum for gram negatives and especially the intrabacteri ACI. If not, then these patients were prescribed either a third generation kefalosporin or if there was a contraindication to that, then IV ciprofloxacin, which is what had been previously used in the Dutch trials. And we found in fact that more than 50% of our patients were already on broad spectrum antibiotics, uh, which is just part of the nature of the disease processes that, that they had. Now, Ian, one of the uh, con controversial areas of STD is the intravenous antibiotic component. You've made a decision to include that. Can you tell us about the background to that decision? Yeah, so that came mainly from, from previous systematic reviews, which did show a, a greater effect in trials that included the intravenous component compared to those that didn't. There certainly has been talk in the literature about SDD versus SOD, which is selective oral decontamination and various different versions of that. Um, we, we felt based on, on previous work that if we were going to show a benefit, um, we would do proper SDD. Um, and in reality, as I said, the majority of our patients, so in, in our pilot work, it was, it was about 64%, and, and in the trial, it was in the mid-50s, but the majority of our patients were on broad-spectrum antibiotics regardless. So whether or not that was part of the protocol, these patients were getting IV antibiotics. Ian, after 18 years of talking about SDD, you have <laughs> just released the results for the trial. Can you tell us what Sudiku has found? So the primary endpoint was hospital mortality. Um, we, we chose hospital mortality specifically because of the, of the nature of the trial. Um, so a prophylactic measure, patients were recruited without consent. Um, 
and, and that was ethical. And we had access to the, the headline hospital mortality. But to follow up patients beyond that would have required specific consent. So for pragmatic re reasons, hospital mortality was the end point. We do, however, have data that hospital mortality and 90-day mortality are very, very closely correlated. This is from, from previous synergy trials. So, so, so looking specifically at, at hospital mortality, which was a primary endpoint. Um, for the cluster randomized trial, we enrolled 5,982 patients, of whom 2,791 received SDD and 3,191 received standard care without SDD. The hospital mortality in the SDD group was 27.0%, and in the standard care group was 29.1%. So that's an absolute risk reduction of 2.1% in hospital mortality. Uh, an odds ratio of 0.91, but with a confidence interval that spanned unity, so between 0.82 and 1.02. So that's not statistically significant. Uh, certainly, the, the odds ratio of 0.991 is, is encouraging, and in fact, is very, very similar to the odds ratio in previous reviews and meta-analyses. But, but strictly, we did not find a statistically significant decrease in mortality as the primary endpoint. In terms of secondary endpoints, we, we looked both at the clinical endpoints, so uh, number of days alive and free of mechanical ventilation and ICU mortality, and, and there was no significant difference there. Um, there was, however, a significant reduction in the number of patients with um, antibiotic-resistant organisms cultured, and also patients with new positive blood cultures in the SDD group. We also looked specifically at the prevalence of Clostridioides difficile. Um, and this was one concern that had been raised, especially in Canada, but there was no difference and a very, very low rate of C. diff in both groups. So in terms of secondary endpoints, we did see a significant decrease in the number of new bloodstream infections and the number of resistant organisms. There's a decrease in the number of resistant organisms, but we did not see overall a significant difference in mortality. We also did an ecological analysis. So this, this is all the other patients who are in the ICU who were not in the trial. And we, we looked there again at, at the incidence of, of bloodstream infections and resistant organisms in CDF. This was designed over five specific periods through the trial where data were collected on every single patient who was in the ICUs. We we're looking at temporal changes across those, those periods to see if the use of SDD had, had changed anything. Um, so this is looking at a non-inferiority margin. And for, for both bloodstream infections and C. diff, there was no significant difference across the course of the trial in, in the ecology subset. The incidence of resistant organisms um, did not fit the non-inferiority threshold. So we can't say for sure there wasn't a change in, in resistance, but if it is, it, it is a relatively small change. Ian, how do we rationalise these findings? As you say, it's, um, it's a statistically non-significant finding, but the point estimate seems to favour SDD. 
which would fit with the pre-existing data. So as a practicing clinician yourself, what will you be thinking that you'll do mm. when you go on service uh, next time? Is this something that we should be implementing at the bedside? This is going to be the really hard question that's going to require a lot of debate over the next few years. Um, firstly, we've got some more work coming up. Um, but by the time this podcast is released, we should also have the results of a systematic review and meta-analysis incorporating our results with, with the previous trials, which is close to completion as, as I speak. Uh, so previous trials all had a point estimate between 0.8 and 0.9. Um, there was one previous European individual patient data meta-analysis of selected high, higher quality trials, and, and that point estimate from memory was 0.92. So we're on pretty well exactly the same point estimate. It's, it's just the confidence intervals. We will see what we show in our systematic review. Um, and I, I can't really preempt right now what that's going to show. I, I, I suspect with increased numbers that, that will show a significant difference, um, but don't know that for sure. Then we need to look at the availability of product. And that was one of the issues designing this trial was, was, was getting a product manufactured. Um, one of the problems that we saw in the trial for longer term ventilated patients, the, the comp compliance went down. So early, early on in the ICU stay, there was very, very high compliance with the intervention, but longer term ventilated patients whom I presume had a tracheostomy and were awake were refusing the staff because it tastes vile. Um, I've had some of this paste myself and it genuinely does taste vile. So one of the challenges, if someone wants to commercially manufacture this, would be to make it palatable, um, which I think is perfectly doable, whether it's just putting in something nice and minty like toothpaste or I, I don't know what they'll do. Um, that will, will then again need all the stability testing to be done. But I think there is a commercial market for something like that. And then for us to make decisions, um, I think we'll need to have some idea about cost. So, so, so we, we have, have something that if you accept a significant difference with our absolute risk reduction of 2.1%, that's a number needed to treat of around about 45 or 46. Um, if we can do something with the cost of a tube of toothpaste and a number needed to treat of 46 to save, save lives, I think that's a no-brainer. If it's hideous expensive, that could be a bit different. The other question is the resistance question, which is still hanging around there despite all the evidence. We, we do have some ongoing work, um, which hasn't been fully an analysed yet, uh, looking in much more detail at four of the participating ICUs, where we managed to collect serial microbiological specimens both endotracheal, perianal or, or rectal swabs and, and, and fecal specimens. And these have all been processed centrally at the Westmead Institute for Medical Research in Sydney. Um, so we're, we're looking both at classical microbiology, but done in a, in a central lab, looking for the same resistance genes in serial specimens over time throughout the ICU stay. But we're also going to be looking more generally at, at the metagenomics and the changes to the microbiome in the gut in these patients over time. 
and looking for any evidence of harm, both for patients in the control group, um, just from critical illness and intensive care admission, and also harm from, from STD. Uh, those data aren't available yet, um, but, but that's also coming up. And I would imagine after 18 years, there's some people along the journey that you'd like to acknowledge as part of this process? It's been a pretty massive program. Um, so first and foremost, all of the ICUs who participated, all of the staff, all of the patients and patients' families, and there's some talking thousands and thousands of people to participate there. Um, then especially the team at the George Institute, which again is 40 or 50 people involved, most particularly the project managers. Uh, so Mariam Career and Fiona Goodman, who've really, really dr driven the process and without them, it was nothing. Um, John Myberg at the team at the Division of Critical Care of Trauma at the George Institute. But really it's, it's a trial of, of thousands of people, like, like, like all of these large trials, no one person can take the credit. Well said. And finally, uh, Ian, I know as a scientist, the data is the data. And as we say, uh, there's no such thing as a negative trial in that sense, that it always helps to inform our practice. But I would imagine that after 18 years, there must be a small uh, piece of you that um, is disappointed that this is a non-effective therapy. Uh, yes, it would be very nice if the confidence interval was just below the magic one. Um, but regardless, I think we've done a very good trial, one of the largest trials of SDD. Um, they've done it very well with all the attention to detail of the trials that we do in Australia and New Zealand with very, very good compliance with the intervention using a properly certified GMP compliant intervention um, with very, very good data validity. So it's a, we're very, very pleased with that. Um, we've shown some, I think, pretty important secondary endpoints. Firstly, with confidence, we are not creating resistance in patients treated with STD, even if there's a, still that tiny doubt in the ecology in the other patients. We are not creating new bloodstream infections. We actually have fewer bloodstream infections, and that, that's really important. And we're not getting outbreaks of C. difficile or outbreaks of anything else, to be honest, including colistin resistance. So we know absolutely for sure that this is safe. Um, we looked at antibiotic usage, and in fact, there is no more antibiotic usage in patients who get STD than those who are in the control group. So this does not drive profligate antibiotic use. Um, this is similar to what has been seen previously in some of the, some of the Dutch trials where while antibiotics are prescribed specifically as part of SDD, there's less wild type prescribing. And overall, we saw in every antibiotic class pretty much the same drug usage in, in the SDD group and the control group. So no, no real differences in antibiotic use, no more resistance, less bloodstream infection, and a point estimate of mortality 0.91. You've got to be pretty happy with that. 
I'm sure you are, Ian. And uh, from all of us, thank you so much for the work that you've done to bring this work to fruition. And congratulations on uh, the release of the trial results. Thank you very much, Todd. Thanks for joining me on the podcast today. Get access to all our great interviews, as well as hundreds of modules, journal reviews, quizzes, and articles by downloading our free app. Search for My Osler wherever you get your apps or visit our website at oslacommunity.com.